1: Everybody and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Text Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and making a commitment to learning. Hope everybody is doing well. We are your hosts. I am Jordan Porter, joined by the amazing Yvonne Brandenburg. Sup. <laughs> also joined by Scoot Scoots Magoots, who's under my desk and sniffing. Oh right. Yeah. Uh, if he makes an appearance, that's because. He's kind of in timeout, but like not in time. He's being rewarded but yet being punished. <laughs> like, mm. This is this is Scotty. Yeah. Ugh, he gets so to insane. come inside more than the other puppies. Because now, according to Matt, he's an inside dog, but like he still can't be trusted alone.
0: Oh. So, dun, dun, dun.
1: so even though the kids are out there. Goot Scoots specifically likes to eat things off the counter, mm. and then he gets raging diarrhea just from eating the smallest amount of stuff.
0: Oh, so he's an internal medicine like dog.
1: Yeah, he was doing this thing this morning because we had him inside this morning, where like he eats or he drinks mostly mostly after he's dr- drank something, he'll just like come walking up next to us and like just regurgitate a little bit onto the floor every time. Oh, nice, and I'm like don't have mega megasophagus but it's only water mm. and i think he just chugs it right oh
0: my god, dogs although <laughs> i don't know cats aren't that much better yeah right at least cats
1: save their problems until they're like 15
0: <laughs> um i guess <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> oh my god no no I mean it's kinda it's funny. So um I'm going down to San Diego. No, I'm going down to UC Irvine mm-hmm. this weekend, uh, to lecture for um I I think it's I think it's called the Conti Symposium and, and it's part of like um I think it's part of like the county like mm. tech stuff. I I'm honestly i'm not even 100% sure for the longest time i thought it was just part of uc irvine but it's not so so i'm going down there uh and, and it's funny cuz you know now i don't have an old cat so i'm just like oh cat sitting is so much easier you could just come over once a day
1: mm-hmm.
0: put some food out nobody needs meds like it's it's going to be it's going to be amazing
1: yeah so. just scoop the litter box once and yeah it'll be but you don't even have
0: to scoot the litter bots because I got a litter robot. Like it's oh yeah super easy. <sighs> yeah, that is nice. Oh my god, I love the litter robot. It's I so wonder great. how much it
1: would cost me to have someone come to my house and try to care for all my animals, all forty of them.
0: Five million dollars.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's be just as expensive as whatever trip I was taking. Oh, <sighs> there is that. Yeah. So that's a bummer yeah but i did it to myself it's fine i like my animals (laughs) most days um other than that i mean we chatted not that long ago so not much has happened in the last three days (laughs) so yeah it's been more than
0: three days but but
1: i think it's been four days right
0: (laughs) really yeah it feels longer than that girl
1: It's been like three and a half days. Uh, But yeah, so this week we're talking about canine parvo virus. I'm surprised that we've been doing this podcast for two years and we haven't talked about parvo, but like
0: well, I think because parvo to me isn't something that internal medicine deals with a lot.
1: I guess it depends on where you're at. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I was gonna
0: say I definitely dealt with it in GP. Um, our emergency department deals with it, but we don't, we don't tend to see Parvo that frequently in, in medicine.
1: We dealt with it a lot at first in the old building that I was in, Mm. like it would transfer from ER to us. Um, and then, and then we kind of put a stop to that because general practice can manage those patients.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. I feel like, I think Parvo is like one of those I'm not gonna say bread and butter but it's like uh it's common enough yeah (laughs) it's it's common enough like I feel like every practice will have some sort of like parvo season kind of thing yeah yeah
1: for sure yeah I learned a lot though about parvo it's like I knew parvo but like I didn't know the ins and outs of parvo I guess Mm. it's it's the same about every time I like research one of these diseases I'm like (laughs) yeah I know it but
0: like (laughs) right oh my god that's so funny
1: so, um, it, it's funny though, cause like feline parvo to me, even though, so it's, it's technically the same virus, right. But I n- never correlate those two. So it's feline panleukopenia. Um, and so canine parvovirus is actually believed to have arisen from feline panleukopenia, mm. but it's not exactly known. That's just suspected. Um, so it is a non-enveloped single strained DNA virus. Um, it is technically an infectious CPV um which can persist everywhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um it's especially susceptible, like or it's especially prevalent in like room temperatures areas for at least three months outdoor if it's as long as it's protected from sunlight um it can persist for many months and possibly years even mm-hmm. um it's really resistant to a lot of those household detergents and disinfectants um and it's resistant to changes in temperature and ph which is why it's still around despite yeah that there's a vaccine <laughs> for it um, yeah a bleach solution can destroy the infective virus, and it needs to be a one to thirty bleach solution. Um, I did learn that the canine parvovirus actually appeared for the first time in do- in dogs in 1978. Oh wow! So feline panleukopenia was around before then, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if I'll get a date on that. I'll have to try to remember to get a date on feline panleukopenia. Um so anyway, so there are two recognized strands of parvovirus. Um they're slightly different, only slightly. So there's CPV2A and CPV2B. Um however, CPV2B tends to be um recognized with the most severe disease,
0: mm.
1: and um they do cause the same disease in our dogs. And the vaccines that are given um, to protect against uh, parvovirus do protect against both strains. Thanks. Yeah. Good old science.
0: Well, and and it's like to know that there's two different strains. Like, you know, like how some years parvo is not so bad. And then other years, it's like, it's like the worst parvo. Yeah,
1: Where you can't like get any to survive. Those are the 2PV or the 2B strain or years and then hmm. versus the 2a years yeah um so what happens like in the body I f- I found this fascinating actually I found like a lot of information about what happens in the body and I'm like holy crap this sucks this is like I knew it sucked but like I didn't know how like on a like cellular level how bad it sucked <laughs>
0: Like well and it's crazy because technically there's even like a human parvovirus which is also kind of crazy to me yeah that people can get parvo it's it's not the same one but yeah kind of crazy
1: so the virus as we all know is shed in the feces um and it's shed before clinical signs actually do appear in our dogs and then (laughs) the shedding continue the virus shedding continues for about 14 days um after clinical signs resolve so They're shedding for a long time. So even when they are in the clear and being discharged and sent home, that's like three to four weeks of shedding. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. I mean, virtually a month.
0: Yeah. Depending on how long they're in hospital.
1: So yeah, exactly. So what happens is the dogs who are susceptible and we'll talk about a little bit, but it tends to be our unvaccinated young puppies. Um, they become infected by ingesting the virus. So typically what happens is uh, there'll be the virus shed in stool on the ground. Um, they can step in feces, lick their paws. They can sniff feces. They can um, eat feces. Cause you know, dogs are disgusting that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after ingestion, what happens is the virus is then carried to the intestines and then it invades the intestinal walls and causes Uh, really severe inflammation, but more happens like along the lines. That's just like the shortened cliff notes version of it. (laughs) Um, So the virus actually gets into the bloodstream. And what it does is it targets the body's rapidly dividing cells. And it really tends to hit the bone marrow the hardest and the cells um, that line the walls of the small intestines. Mm -hmm. So those are the two areas that tend to get the brunt of the virus um Mm. in our very very young dogs so those couple week old pups um it can actually also infect the heart and it can lead to inflammation and poor function and even arrhythmias dang i know i'm telling you i didn't know like on a cellular level how bad parvo was
0: i guess i mean it makes sense like they feel like crap right yeah yeah
1: yeah So when the virus is in the bone marrow, what it does is it weakens the body's ability to protect itself. Um because what it this is this was mind blowing to me. I was like, holy crap, this virus is really just like <laughs> like the most evil villain ever. Oh <laughs> <Because> my god. <laughs> <laughs> it'll da, da, da. Destroy, I know. It'll destroy those like brand new immune cells that the bone marrow is trying to put out. And so it causes a drop in our in our white blood cell count that helps protect the body, obviously. Um, but because it's doing this, it then makes it easier for the virus to invade the GI tract, um, where it does tend to do the worst
0: of it, So that's of it. crazy to me because I always just I just assumed that they were like panleukopenic because of the infection and the body fighting it off, and like that's why we were low white blood cells. Yeah, like no. my brain did not recognize that we're actually destroying the white blood cells that are coming from the bone marrow. That's crazy to me. So it's like all those cells that, like you know, when your antibodies and stuff like that start trying to work, and the bone marrow is pushing out white blood cells. The virus is like, nah,
1: nope, nope, no children allowed. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Oh my yeah,
0: uh,
1: it get, it gets worse. So,
0: <laughs> which makes sense. Like when we think of like feline panleukopenia and that this is related to that, mm-hmm. that that actually makes sense why they think it may have come from feline panleukopenia.
1: Yeah, exactly. Crazy. So after the virus is like, sorry, no young white blood cells are allowed to pass here Mm -hmm. um it then targets the epithelium of the small bowels and right uh,
0: because those are rapidly dividing cells
1: yep which obviously the epithelium is the lining that helps to absorb nutrients and then what it does (gasps) too is it provides a barrier against fluid loss and and bacterial invasion um you know to help protect the rest of the body And, and then um so then essentially bacteria because it's destroying
0: the epithelium that's when you get that translocation
1: that yeah that's when you get the secondary infection from bacteria then getting into the bloodstream
0: and we have no white blood cells
1: yeah exactly okay so then then um the virus is like no seriously you can't uh help protect the body anymore so what the body tries to do is it tries to create new epithelium cells and then the virus disables those body the, the body's ability to actually replenish those
0: <laughs> intestinal cells uh virus like i don't dude viruses or i don't know they're like the kamikaze like they just go in and they're not kamikaze because they they multiply so they're the assassins
1: mhm yeah but the virus mm. itself actually isn't always fatal like it doesn't it, like
0: <laughs> it's just when, everything else that kills <laughs>
1: yeah <sighs> when death occurs it's usually um a result of like shock dehydration septic toxins that are produced by the bacteria that then because the intestines can't block those um toxins that are being produced by the bacteria it mm. then goes into the bloodstream. So it yeah, it's like I said, I knew about parvo virus, but like I didn't know the breakdown of it about like what the virus was doing to the body. I was like, holy crap.
0: Yeah. It's even worse than I thought. I mean, I knew it was bad, but it was like, ooh.
1: It's a really, really and it's like it's funny too, because like if this information would get out about like what exactly is happening in the body, I feel like there'd be a lot more pet parents that are like yeah, no, I really need to get my dog vaccinated. <laughs> like, mm, you think so? I I think maybe not a lot more, but there would be an increase in people who are like, oh, yeah. Because, I think like, those
0: are the ones that are already vaccinating anyways.
1: Yeah, maybe you're right. Because, like, it is already out there that Parvo <laughs> kills. But, yeah. like, I don't know. I, I just have hopes that, like, if people were better
0: educated that maybe. I, I agree. Better education definitely can help. Yeah. Um, yeah i just think of it's a whole other soapbox but um you know when they get the information from their breeders that are like they don't need vaccines oh
1: my god i had like, no. the other day they <laughs> this person was buying a dog from a breeder and like luckily they were trying to do research and see what the like if the breeder what they were saying was like accurate so they were asking if like they're like the breeder said like they gave the first vaccine um, at the breeder and then they said <laughs> no more vaccines go get titers done instead. And I'm like, that's a waste of money because your titers aren't going to be high enough because Mm-mm. like the whole reason of the three series vaccine is to try to hit the right window of like when the immunity is going to take effect. <laughs> like, yeah. And they're trying to say not to do the triple vaccines because it's over vaccinating puppies. And I'm just like, Oh my God, stop.
0: I can. So the problem, well, we know this, right? The problem with the titers is if it's the mom's antibodies that are still floating around, your titers are going to be high because mom's antibodies are protecting. So you can't differentiate between maternal antibodies and vaccination antibodies. So, like, how frequent are you gonna titer these these puppies? As frequent as you should oh. be vaccinating them.
1: Right? So just vaccinate
0: <laughs> them. Yeah.
1: I just don't understand the like I get that vaccine reactions occur. I am very aware that vaccine yeah. reactions occur. And like you'll get every vet professional who's like, yeah, vaccine reactions occur. But like to be so terrified of a vaccine reaction over a parvovirus is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah yeah
0: well <clears throat> anyway yeah well we know because we deal with medicine and science that um we vaccinate against bad things how about that
1: yeah yeah Bailey's gotta go get vaccines tomorrow she's not old mm-hmm. <laughs> that's funny yeah um anyway So how this typically presents is obviously it's going to be our young patients. So mostly our puppies. And this tends to be between six weeks and six months old. It can be seen in adults, especially if they're unvaccinated um, or incompletely vaccinated, as we just kind of ranted about a little bit. Or Um, they have immune suppression. Yeah. Those dogs tend to be the most susceptible. And I learned this too, because I didn't realize, but breeds... There are certain breeds that are at increased risk, mm-hmm. which makes total sense because, like, I've seen all of these breeds with Parvo, but like, <laughs> right. but part of me wonders if this is because these are the most common breeds not actually being vaccinated and if that's why it's more prevalent.
0: No, because I, I think, ugh. no, because I think I remember reading somewhere that it was, yeah, um, no. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, anyway, the breed that increase <laughs> risk tend to be our German Shepherds, our Rottweilers, Dobermans, Pitbulls, and English Springer Spaniels.
0: Um, because it... if it was the ones that were unvaccinated, i feel like Doodles would be on this list. Oh, really? See, I feel like Doodles are always vaccinated. I feel like some of those Doodle breeders, though
1: yeah maybe this is no this was a pretty up-to-date like resource that i got this from
0: yeah
1: um because i learned like new things that like since i've been out of practice i was like oh i didn't know this was a thing (laughs) (laughs) right um so clinical signs though tend to develop within five to seven days of infection so remember though they are shedding before they show clinical signs right uh (laughs) and then they are shedding after their clinical signs go away um but typically the most common clinical signs that we're going to see are vomiting and diarrhea severe vomiting and diarrhea everybody knows like if you worked with parvo like parvo has a smell like the diarrhea has a certain (laughs) smell to it um and it's funny because all the the research that i did it just says a very strong smell but like nobody wrote like very specific like there's a very specific smell of like just sloughing bowels (laughs) like
0: um
1: the stool can contain a lot of mucus and sometimes can contain blood obviously because if there's a lot of inflammation and sloughing of intestines um a lot of these dogs can have lack of appetite obviously and uh restless or not restlessness but um lethargy and depression and fever a lot of these dogs We'll start with vomiting diarrhea and then it's a pretty rapid decline to just like uptunded and like yeah. not wanting to move.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean they're losing a ton of fluids, right? And then <clears throat> once you've got the fluid loss, then you've got your bacterial translocation and it's just it's just not fun. And and they're in there, it's painful. Like these kids, like their their bellies are usually painful, like it's uncomfortable to have that much diarrhea um yeah
1: but if if they are painful so if they have abdominal pain that does tend to uh, require like further investigation because in can be common in these guys because their bowels are just moving and moving and moving and moving yeah they're Um, inappropriate
0: (laughs) these guys like when they come in um And it, and it can be really rapid. Like they could be kind of normal in the, in the morning. And then in the afternoon, evening, like they can come in collapsed, shocky, right? You've got prolonged CRT because they're, they're losing fluids, poor uh, pulses, tachycardic. They could be, they're usually cold and these are like little patients. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not like they have a lot of reserves, um, so you just have to be really careful, and just you know, we, we usually kind of assume there's some sort of like a septic shock just kind of going on because they do come in so debilitated, um, and they can get they can get worse while in hospital too. Oh, like, for sure. Even with starting treatments and everything, so everybody, I feel like everybody knows this part. Yeah.
1: And so our differential diagnosis list, um, is going to be pretty much anything GI related, but because it's a puppy, um, because it's a puppy, puppy, Parvo should be on the list, no matter what you might actually be chasing, um, whether the vaccine status or not, uh, but parasites, foreign body in a susception uh yeah we body. usually do the we usually lower do body. the parvo te- yeah we usually <laughs> yeah. do the parvo
0: test first yeah and if that's negative then we start looking for everything else but yeah yeah exactly. most of the times we're like mm, no you're parvo until proven otherwise <laughs> yeah yeah
1: and so obviously our diagnostic diagnostics are going to be based around like the pet signalment its history and its clinical signs um cuz again if you have that 8 week old puppy who's not had vaccines yet but's been here and there um who's vomiting and diarrhea and now lethargic
0: yeah did you take the puppy that's not back fully vaccinated to the park to petco Ugh. Yeah.
1: I mean, even like around someone's apartment complex, like, no, we just took them outside to go for a walk. Like mm-hmm. that's great, but you don't know what else is around there. <laughs> like yeah. you don't know who else is walking their unvaccinated dog.
0: Well, and you have to remember, like, again, this is like once clinical signs have stopped, they're still shedding for another two weeks. And I feel like a lot of clients don't know that. And I, I, I would, I would say we're probably not great at always explaining that no definitely um, not and saying they still need to be in isolation at home for another at least two weeks don't have your friend's dogs come over that's a puppy you know like no play dates none of that stuff um <clears throat> and so you know they take them out for a walk and they go poop
1: well and... And even just cleaning up after yourselves like with a bag because mm-hmm. their stools are then normal like it's still not sufficient like you're still they're still shedding the virus yeah So, yeah, I, but I agree that like, I don't, the whole shedding for two weeks after clinical science resolve was, I think I knew it. I just think it was lost in my
0: brain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I probably knew it at some point. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good reminder. (laughs) I haven't dealt with Parvo because Lord
1: knows I don't need Parvo in my house. <gasps> my dogs are vaccinated, but uh, and they don't go anywhere, but um, like they legit don't go anywhere. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, knock on wood. I haven't dealt with Parvo in a while, but um, confirmation can be performed by antigen testing or viral PCR testing. But a lot of times we're actually doing the commercial like ELISA testing in hospital because it's quick and yeah easily available and it's highly sensitive and specific Mm -hmm. um for even the more uh evolved cpv2c
0: strain which is new wait so now there's another one yeah yeah of course there is yeah well i mean it's like any virus right like they start evolving and it's they adapt they adapt to their environments and they want to thrive
1: yeah, exactly. Mm. And so with these tests, though, with the ELISA test, false negatives can be seen um, if it's like really early in the disease. So typically, like before peak shedding, um, and this tends to be because like the the large volume of diarrhea actually dilutes out, like has a dilution effect on the virus, mm. um, and or or what can happen too is there's like a decline in viral shedding. Um, that can occur about 10 days, 10 to 12 days within like the time of infection. So Mm -hmm. usually about roughly around three to four days after they develop clinical signs, which is around the time, uh, clients can bring these guys in. So (laughs) false negatives can be seen. Um, false positives can occur if they are tested around like within four to 10 days of vaccination with a modified live vaccine. Yep. Um, and then what can happen to? We kind of talked about this already. Uh, but these guys can develop a really moderate to severe leukopenia. Um, and this is most it's most uh characterized by like a lympho- lymphopenia and a neutropenia.
0: Mm. So one of the things with leukopenia and uh, lymphopenia is if we're seeing within that first 24 hours of starting treatment, if we're seeing an absence of banned neutrophils, so remember banned neutrophils are our baby neutrophils, if we're not seeing them within 24 hours, that that is a poor prognostic indicator. So, you know, hopefully once we start fluids and start antibiotics and stuff like that and really start to, support these these kiddos they're gonna start producing some neutrophils so we get worried if we don't start seeing them um we can also just on our lab work we can see some pre-renal azotemia because again we've got vomiting and diarrhea we can see hypoalbuminemia partially because they're they're just losing the protein um but we're also not absorbing albumin appropriately Um, through our guts because of of the sloughing and everything. We can have hyponatremia, hypokalemia, hypochlorinemia, um, and of course, hypoglycemia. Um, These are young puppies, right? They need to be eating frequently. Normally, Um, they don't have a ton of glycogen stores, so they can't really respond with that. Um, And we potentially have that sepsis um, as well. So you know if if we're unable to get them to have normal blood glucoses that's another potentially poor prognostic indicator so dim neutrophils low blood sugar we start getting scared um yeah. and then as far as chemistries sometimes we'll see liver enzymes that can be elevated and um but other than that i mean other well, than- other than that it's fine <laughs> just electrolytes and cbcs mm. and all sorts of fun stuff
1: <laughs> yeah daily daily we'll talk about treatment i guess but uh yeah. <laughs> it it sucks because it's daily monitoring of a cbc chem and electrolytes minimum
0: and these are little so draw the minimum amounts that you can't have to yeah please, please be aware of that
1: yeah so treatment it's not really treating the virus right like it's treating the symptoms of the pet and trying to help restore their body um but dogs who even if they're suspected and not confirmed um dogs who we think might have parvovirus should be isolated immediately um from other dogs so i mean i worked in several practices where we did not have an isolation ward we did our best with what we had
0: <laughs> holy like,
1: crap wow yeah, it, you, you do your best with what you have. It just it is the way it is. You have a a bleach bath bucket and you make sure that you try to only have one technician working on the pet um, and not touching other pets, especially other young pets, and you try to keep them tucked away in the furthest corner of the hospital um and try not to put anything else near them as best as you can. Like it it's realistic, it but it's a shame.
0: Wow. Yeah. I don't I don't think I've ever worked in a practice that didn't have at least like one or two kennels that were in an isolation closet <laughs> or a room.
1: I think I've only worked in one practice where we had a true isolation ward, Ugh. like with a separate sink and everything. like, oh wow. other than that, it's always been like, do your best mm. and we've we've had success and like, you know, no transmission and stuff like you just have to do it. Right. Um, but yeah, so treatment's going to be mostly, uh, supportive care and that's going to include obviously fluid therapy and electrolyte therapy, um, to try to restore balances. And then we want to do nutritional support. And then when we say supportive care, we're talking antiemetics and lots of antibiotics, because again, we know that bacteria can transmit to the bloodstream with this virus. Um, but the main goal is going to be restoration of fluid, electrolytes, and metabolic abnormalities, um, and then prevention of secondary bacterial infection. Yeah. So the the first line of defense, right, is going to be getting an IV catheter in and starting IV fluid therapy to restore hydration. And then I say plus or minus electrolyte additives, but it's a plus. Like it's. <laughs> it's always- I mean,
0: obviously, go by your lab work, but. of these kids you're going to be adding electrolytes to.
1: As they improve though, the electrolyte out of those might go away.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And 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 these kids are like, especially the little ones, right? Sometimes these are our jug catheter patients because we can't get a peripheral catheter into them well because um, they're so
1: shocky sometimes mm-hmm. and they're so dehydrated and not to mention a jug cath can be a good idea because we have to draw blood on these guys at least once a day mm-hmm. if you're checking blood sugars and you know we're poking them multiple times a day um mm-hmm. which doesn't help our dehydration right like right. we're they're still getting losses and that that's you know losses because of us yeah um Yvonne mentioned that they can be hypoproteinemic. So sometimes we want to add in some colloids. So things like head starch can be administered. Um, and then we kind of briefly talked on antibiotics are going to be indicated just due to the risk. It's a high risk of bacteria just, you know, going into the bloodstream due to the uh, epithelium being destroyed by the virus uh, of the intestines. Yeah. And then... Um, and because of the concurrent neutropenia that's occurring usually as well. Did
0: you, um? did you find anything that talked about using plasma? So I looked specifically for that, but it's not proven that it works. Because we've had, we've done a couple where, especially like a recent Parvo survivor pup, right? Mm-hmm. We could get plasma from them. Like, yes, it's a colloid and there's potentially higher, um, antibodies against Parvo. Um, so we've done that a, a few times. I mean, yeah. unfortunately we don't always have that luxury. Um, but if, if that's an option, sometimes yeah. we'll do that.
1: I've definitely seen it done where we've given frozen plasma specifically, cause they don't necessarily need the fresh frozen, um, for the protein itself, but there's, there's no, there might be s- some studies now but i couldn't find anything specifically regarding that but i know it's mm. been done um there used to be a really common thing of like of course if these patients are vomiting that we want to empty them for until they stop vomiting um mm-hmm. but new evidence actually shows that um initiating nutrition as early as possible Um, can actually improve the pet clinically as well as um, allow for weight gain and improve the gut barrier function, which the gut barrier function, of course, when fighting this virus is going to be probably the most important thing. Um, So really trying to get uh, that true enteral nutrition into these patients as soon as possible. So trying to get that vomiting under control. And I mean, what I'm saying enteral nutrition i'm not saying feed them a whole meal like an hour after they last vomited i'm saying try to give them just like a teaspoon of food Mm. uh even if it's just baby food um to try to help help their guts out a little bit and really improve that gut barrier uh for our anorexic dogs the ones who i don't blame for not wanting to eat right sometimes we'll place a nasal esophageal tube or a nasogastric tube and so we can do like drip feeding. So we'll prepare like a liquid diet. Uh Royal Canin has some wonderful new liquid diets that were brand new when I was still dealing with Parvo. Patients, <laughs> <All right>. But <laughs> I haven't had the chance to use them now. Um, So we blended canned food into a liquid <laughs> and did drip feeding. Yeah. Uh And then this should be instituted within 12 hours of hospitalization. Yep. Yeah. And then, Oh, I, I learned this too, because like, it makes sense. Like it it really makes sense. Right. So you can do fecal transplants in these guys mm-hmm. uh, and you're going to ad- mix the feces with a uh, saline and then it's administered rectally. And this should be done within the first 12 hours as well of the pet being hospitalized with Parvo um, just to kind of help with a faster uh resolution of that diarrhea and it actually has been proven to show or have patients with shorter hospitalization
0: time hmm. I wonder if adding adding probiotics into like your liquid diet if that oh, would potentially sure. help too I don't see why it wouldn't right like because let's you're... get some good gut bacteria back in there
1: yeah exactly or at least maybe like the following day when you might have like some of that gut barrier because i guess you would worry about the bacteria still tra- even though it's good bacteria like i guess there would still be a worry about it transmitting through to the bloodstream a little bit but like so maybe but the following that, i mean day, but you
0: wouldn't i mean that compared to like doing a fecal transplant yeah like that's those true. are both that's
1: true that's it's both, the same thing yeah you're right yeah um There is an antiviral agent, and I've heard this used in uh, our Parvo puppies, uh, and it's usually used to treat the influenza virus in people. Um, And I have worked with some doctors who have used it in treating Parvo in puppies. Uh, It did not, studies show that, actually just one study, a study shows (laughs) That it did not decrease the amount of hospitalization time that the pet uh, incurred, but it it did decrease the disease severity. Mm. Or no, I'm sorry. It did not decrease the disease ser- severity or the mortality. So mm. what it did do, though, is the dogs who were treated with the antiviral um, did not experience weight loss usually or a decrease in white blood cell count. Huh.
0: What'd
1: you so say? It didn't actually... Help the clinical signs. It didn't help. It didn't necessarily prevent death and it didn't decrease hospitalized stay. It just allowed pets to not lose weight while they were in the hospital and not decrease their white blood cell count lower than what it was.
0: That's so interesting. So, mm, interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like one of those things where it's like, I don't know what to make of it. Right. Like, Right. Yeah. You know whose call that is? That's a doctor's call.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to the client, figure out if that's something they want to try. Does it hurt? No.
1: No. Doesn't hurt. But does it help? Eh, and from what I, from what I understand, because I was on that antiviral once when I had the flu, um, it's expensive. Yeah. But if you're already doing parvo treatment, what's an extra hundred or two hundred dollars? Because like when (laughs) I say expensive, like (laughs) no, that's not true. I think it was like originally like seven hundred, and I was like, no, thanks. I think I ended up paying like three hundred for it. Woo! For three
0: people though, so it's a hundred. And this is the, oseltamivir. Yeah. I've I kind of swore that we did like, was it famcyclovir? maybe Hmm. I know we did an antiviral like this was forever ago I think that was still when I was in GP and I was like what is this antiviral thing um but that word the aceltamivir doesn't sound familiar unless that's no that looks like that looks like a generic name that doesn't look like a (laughs) a brand name yeah I think it (sighs) is generic
1: I don't know. I'm not good with no. human antivirals or human medications. I'm unless not I've good been with
0: antivirals.
1: Them. Yeah, that's <laughs> that too. Uh, so client communication for this, though, is mostly going to rely on doctors because prognosis can be iffy. Mm-hmm. Uh, most puppies that can fight hard enough to make it through the first three to four days of, of the disease tend to make a full recovery um and the recovery can actually occur within a week usually um and typically with the appropriate like supportive care so hospitalization with iv fluids not outpatient therapy uh 70 to 90% of dogs with canine parvovirus actually can survive well will survive um yeah does i think that it depends on like how does it like- work like
0: yeah, I think it depends on like how late the clients bring it in, right? Like how bad is it when it gets there? It talks about the prognostic indicators of like are we hypoglycemic? Are we shocky? Do we have band neutrophils? And then it's like, well, which which strain of parvovirus are we infected with? And Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I and I mean, I
1: mean- Outpatient care can definitely work. Like I've seen it work, and I have nothing against outpatient care. But there's those patients that you get through in the hospital that you're like, "Uh, mm." but I mean, if it's that or nothing, yeah. Some clients don't have a choice. Like it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Um, Anyway, dogs that do recover actually have been shown to develop like a long-term and even possibly lifelong immunity. Wow. to parvovirus that being said i have also seen and i think there might be a current study maybe i'm making this up but uh dogs who have survived parvovirus are actually more susceptible to food allergies or things like uh
0: ple <laughs> because yeah, of the destruction to their gut i was gonna say i think i remember seeing IVD. that somewhere um that they do tend to have more GI issues and it, it makes sense like if you're if your guts have been attacked you're going to have some potentially long-term damage whether that's you know to the to the different crypts that are in there to the you know the the microvilli like they're, you're going to have potentially some damage
1: i imagine um, that there's so. going to be some leftover permeability
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so well, um, and, and too, like when we talk about like IBD and stuff like that, like you and I, we've talked about it is that's an immune response, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, it makes sense that the body goes, some food may be the problem and hey, it may have caused this issue. And, you know, we, we have that inappropriate immune response to food.
1: Yeah, for sure. For Sure. It's like the body like redirects and it's like, oh, chicken is bad. (laughs) You had parvo. Yeah. Yeah. Could be parvo, but I think it's
0: chicken, but it could be parvo. (laughs) Uh, We got that (laughs) labeled wrong. It's fine. Yeah. Wrong name Um, tag at the party. It's, It's fine. The other thing too about client communication, I think that's huge is just making sure that they understand one, prevention, right? So proper vaccination, making sure that puppies are you know appropriately handled outside of the house um if you have a history of an animal previously having parvo at your property like you should clean appropriately um you know there's even if you haven't had a history i mean like the
1: your dog the dog's not going to get reinfected as parvo right like we know that right but it should still be cleaned and treated as if it were Parvo in case someone else comes over, you
0: move, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, we
1: know that Parvo can live in the environment for years. Yeah. not cleaned properly.
0: Yep. Um, and then just making sure that they understand, like at least two weeks after going home, <laughs> at least two weeks, do not have them interacting with immune compromised pets, any other puppies, anything that's not fully vaccinated, you know, I, I, and I think washing your hands, like all that stuff is going to be really important.
1: So the only thing it can play with is another puppy who survived Parvo. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be a bummer. Like what if, Oh, that would be a bummer. Yeah.
0: I mean, you, ha- if you have fully vaccinated adult dogs, like and yeah, they who live are in are same house, Yeah. then that's fine. But you know, you just, just make that, informed decision like make sure your friends know hey my puppy's recovering from parvo (laughs) like yeah please be aware of that so yeah
1: because i mean a lot of
0: times people don't know if
1: their pets are immune compromised until something bad happens um true Mm -hmm. same for people right like true anyway uh i think our cautions for this week are the complications that can occur from parvo Mm -hmm. that we not that we don't think about, but that like we try to push back in our brain. So we don't try to think negatively when we have these patients. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we can get in the susceptions. As I kind of said earlier, we can have, uh, bacterial overgrowth at the site of IV catheters. Cause these guys are immune compromised. Right. Mm. So, um, They can have blood clots. They can get urinary tract infections because, again, these guys are laying in cages and they're urinating and defecating on themselves. If they're not urinating on themselves, they're definitely defecating on themselves. So they're prone (laughs) to UTIs. Uh, They can become septic. They can have acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Mm. Uh, They can have sudden death, of course, because of the complications from parvovirus. So things to be aware of and keep in the back of your mind but again understanding that we don't necessarily want to think negatively we just want to think realistically
0: yeah yeah it's the tip of the week and i think um we i think we kind of touched on it just tip of the week is going to be cleanliness yes (laughs) right um yes bleach is a bleach solution, not straight bleach, please do not use straight bleach. It actually doesn't do the job. Um, it doesn't need to be diluted to one to 30. There's also other, um, you know, appropriate clean cleaners out there, disinfectants. Mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, if you're in a clinic, make sure that whatever you're using says that it's appropriate for Parvo or a lot of any the veterinary other ones that you have so yeah a lot of the
1: veterinary cleansers are really good about like putting that on yeah. their labels yeah um like even the ones that you wouldn't think would be good for parvo are like surprisingly good for parvo
0: yeah i think with parvo it's not it's not a strong virus like yes if you don't use a disinfectant on it it's strong but as soon as you kind of hit it with a disinfectant like it kills it pretty quickly which is nice yeah yeah an appropriate disinfectant and now for the question of the week
1: um i have a question of the week because i've heard of this but i have not seen it personally myself but uh and of course i know it can happen but i want to know if you've treated an adult dog for parvo virus i've seen slash heard of like two-year-olds who weren't vaccinated um just mm. happened to make it to two without getting parvo. Uh, but like, I'm curious as to those like immune compromise, the ones that we don't,
0: we, had we don't expect. <laughs> yeah. We had one. It was actually one of our oncology patients. Um, and we're pretty sure they probably picked it up in our hospital uh, wow. just because this oh, it was like a whole thing. This dog came in. For something completely different. And unfortunately, it was like it was one of those situations where um the primary vet did did a neuter, but did it inappropriately. So it ended mm. up with us and was there for a couple of weeks. And that puppy like ended up picking up Parvo oh. but while he was there. But because he was there, we didn't catch it until we we're like, oh, you have Parvo now. You've been in the hospital for like weeks. Cool. Um, and then I mean the same a thing dog that was like humans, next right? to yeah, and a dog that was next to that puppy in CCU like ended up getting it because he was immune compromised. So it was just like a whole thing.
1: And that's something to be aware of too, right? Like it's very easy for any patient to be in the hospital and be immune compromised because mm-hmm. they're in the hospital and you're just helping their bodies uh, you know,
0: sustain life. Uh, yeah. so uh Well, and not only that, but, like, that that brings up, like, a really good point. Like, if you do have younger animals or parvo animals that you suspect are parvo, you know, make them go somewhere different other than where your immune-compromised animals go outside to go to the bathroom.
1: Well, and we do the same thing (laughs) for, like, our our lepto-suspects and stuff, right? Like, we have a specific area that we try to walk them away from where others might walk. Yep, and you disinfect Um, it occasionally. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. so it is something but like i said it's the same in human medicine people pick up diseases all the time just being in the hospital Yup. so other than that that's all i got for y'all this week (laughs) other Um, than that that's all we're talking about (laughs) i i mean i learned a lot so you know i'm happy but anyway um cool that's it we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening and making a commitment to learning. I hope everybody has a fantastic week. School starts soon for some of us. So <laughs> um, good yep.
0: luck. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And I Except think for uh, most parents are probably like, yes, get out. <laughs> Go. Right. Well, and I think some people isn't this uh VTE window? Uh, I think so. I think it happens in July. For yeah. some, July, August. July, August. So if you're taking your VTE, you got this. So just, you got it.
1: <laughs> uh, thanks so much again, everybody. Good luck to everybody with, you know, the end of summer and um, VTEs and all that good stuff. And we will talk to you guys next week.
0: Yep. Bye.
1: Bye, guys.